Well, good morning. And uh, as people make their way back in, um, I just wanted to, first of all, uh, just let y'all know, if you haven't heard already, uh, Seth and Jill had their baby on Thursday, uh, little baby Lucas. And so we're really excited for them. And uh, since they had a baby and they kind of have a lot going on, um, I am filling in for Seth this week. So if you're new here or haven't been here before, um, I just want to introduce myself. My name's Bo Stevens, and I'm one of the elders here at Waypoint. And uh, I am filling in for our pastor, uh, Seth Ellsworth. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, or look on your phones at John chapter 17, that's where we're going to be uh, camping out this morning. And so uh, even if you turn to some other passages with me along the way, uh, keep your thumb there at John chapter 17. We're going to be in verse 20 to start. As I said, my name's Bo Stevens, and uh, my wife is Drew, and we have four kids. And uh, we live out south of Texaco, out in the country, and I farm for a living. And so um, we love the lifestyle it affords us. We love where we get to live and what we get to do. Um, but for me right now, uh, it's a pretty busy season. Uh, we've had harvest, and so now I'm in there. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm on the tractor a lot this time of year. And so with that means that some of my uh, hobbies and some things that I enjoy doing kind of go by the wayside for a little while here. And one of those um, things that I enjoy doing, uh, and my mom would probably call me a liar right now, but I do now enjoy reading. Um, I didn't growing up, I didn't really enjoy it a lot, but I, but I really enjoy reading. And so that, that hobby uh, kind of goes by the wayside. And I think Drew even sees my stack of books that I want to read growing and uh, the stack of books that I have read has been unchanged for a couple months now. But I may not have time to read, but I have a lot of time on my hands to listen. Uh, on the tractor. If any of you are unfamiliar with modern farming practices, yes, I have a cab on my tractor. It has air conditioning and get this, it has a radio. So I know that uh, a lot of you who have this image of sitting on this open cab tractor and going through the dusty fields uh, have no respect for me now. That's okay. I enjoy my air conditioning and my speakers. But I do get to listen to a lot of things. And uh, if you know me, you know I, I'm always looking for something to listen to. I love listening to podcasts of all sorts. Um, I listen to a lot of sports radio, a lot of music. And then the other thing that I like to listen to are books. Uh, that if you're going to be on the tractor for a long time, you better get a good book because that'll really uh, tide you over. And so I listened to a book recently um, that was really good. And I'll be interested to see if any of you have heard of or has anybody read a book called Boys in the Boat? Has anybody heard of that or read it? Okay, get out there, get cultured people. It's a really popular book. It's a good one. Um, I really would put it on your, on your read list. It's by Daniel James Brown, and I'll give you just kind of a brief overview of, of what that book is and what it's about. It uh, actually follows uh, the story of the 1936 Olympic, U.S. Olympic rowing team. And so on the surface, maybe it doesn't sound that amazing or uh, exciting, uh, but it's a really neat look because not only is it about this Olympic rowing team that had this um, amazing rise to success, uh, it's about the time period and the circumstances in which it takes place. If you're looking at 1936, that's the Berlin Games in Germany. Uh, you're looking at the, the height of kind of the Nazi regime and their reign over Germany. Uh, Adolf Hitler is obviously very prominent in this whole picture. And so that has a really interesting slant on the book. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting, too, is the fact that it's in, coming out of really the Great Depression. I mean, we still as a nation, uh, we're very economically uh, and financially depressed. 
And so uh, it's just got so many good stories and it really focuses a lot on, on one guy. His name is Joe Rance, uh, but really looks at the team as a whole. So about, I listened to that book maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, about three weeks ago, I knew this much about rowing, zero. Now I feel like I'm an expert and I could kind of do it. Uh, I've never been in a rowboat still, but I feel like I could do it based on all the descriptions. Uh, I'm assuming that many of us in here have little to no experience with rowing. If you're from eastern New Mexico or west Texas, uh, we don't have a lot of water. Now, Bob, you're the closest that I can get to. You sail, correct? So that's like the one water sport that we have represented is sailing. As far as rowing, um, I had to learn a lot. And I learned that um, this was about eight-man rowing, okay? So this, uh, there's some different types of rowing. This is eight-man rowing. So you've got this boat. It's about 64 feet long. It's about two feet wide. And you have eight men that are rowing. They're called the oarsmen. And then you actually have a ninth man in the boat. He's called the coxswain. He's the one, if you've ever seen it on TV or anything, uh, he's the guy kind of at the head of the boat, yelling at people, telling them what to do, keeping the time and the rhythm for everybody. So you've got these nine men that are all on this boat trying to accomplish this one goal. And it's, it's really neat to hear about the things that go into it because on the surface, you could imagine, yeah, you've got to have a lot of strength and stamina. So certainly you want some men or some women that, that have a lot of strength and stamina to endure a race. It's anywhere from two to four miles, depending on the race. Uh, anywhere from 6 to 15 minutes of just nonstop full body exertion as you row. But beyond that, there's what I learned a whole lot about was technique. Uh, you don't just get in a boat and just start rowing. If you've ever been in a canoe or, or anything like that, you know there's a lot more to it than just start, you know, running some paddles. Uh, and so it's, you know, you got to be sitting just right in the boat. You got to have the posture and, and you got to be making the right motions. Your arm angles and how you roll your wrist has to be just right. The oar, how it enters the water, like you have to be watching that oar and know it's got to enter the water at a certain angle. It's got to exit the water at a certain angle. The height and the depth at which you move that oar, it's amazing all the technique that goes into rowing a boat, especially when you have eight men trying to do it all at the same time. Um, but beyond those two things, strength and stamina in your technique, uh, there's a third aspect that I honestly would have had no idea about if it weren't for, for reading this book and learning more about it, is this idea of the cohesion and the unity that you have to have as a rowing team. You see, you could have the strongest guys, uh, the guys with the most endurance, you could have the guys with perfect and flawless technique. But if you don't have all eight <clears throat> and really all nine of those rowing team members working together in cohesion and in harmony with one another, you're not gonna go anywhere, at least not very fast. And so they got to a point in the book where it talked about at the pinnacle of any rowing team's absolute success. And I mean, I'm talking like the best in the world type of rowing teams, they will attain something called their swing. And so it's at this point, it's, it, they can't predict it, they can't make it, you can't force it to happen. But at any given time in a race or in training, uh, if all nine men get on the same page, if they are just, if they are in sync with one another, they know what the person behind them is doing without looking. They know what the person in front of them is going to be doing without having to look. When all of that comes together and the technique and all the training has accumulated to this one moment where everything is perfectly in sync, it's called your swing. And they, they describe it in the book, and it, it says very few people or teams ever even know what this feels like. It's how rare it is to get this 
absolute just sense of harmony and unity with one another. But when you hit that swing, they describe it as like you're just gliding across water, almost like you're flying. And even though you're exerting yourself, it's almost as if it's effortless how fast and how quickly you cut through that water. That book I listened to a few weeks ago um, really encapsulated uh, an idea that God had placed on my heart. Um, and when I was, I, I had been uh, thinking about some things and praying, and God really laid a specific verse on my heart. And it's where you are in John chapter 17, and it's verses 20 through 23. And as I listened to this book, um, I just... It was just amazing to see and kind of hear. I wasn't looking to draw some comparisons. I really didn't know a lot about the book before I listened to it. But it was amazing to see the connections that God was making for me between the verse that He had laid on my heart and this long-form image of, of an example of what that verse means in, in the Boys in the Boat book that I read. So if you want to look at John 17, verses 20 through 23... I'm going to read it here. And just to give you a little context, this is at the end of Jesus' life. It is literally moments before He's about to be arrested. And um, this is a prayer that He is praying to God the Father. And He has already prayed for Himself and He has prayed for His disciples. And we pick up here in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, His disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I just want to lift uh, this time up to you. God, I pray that you would let those words, the words of Jesus, just sink in our hearts and our minds right now. God, I pray that you would just focus our minds on the things that you would have us to see and to hear from your Scripture. Father, I pray that you would take my words, uh, God, my stuttering and my redundancy, and, and Father, my long-windedness away. Father, I pray that your words only would remain. God, I pray that you would just reveal a message for each one of us in our own hearts this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Just as God the Father and Jesus are one, Christ calls for us to be one. It's Christ's desire that all believers would be one. And again, in this context of this passage, the way I view it, it's literally like a, a dying man's last request. Like Jesus knew, like we know from the scriptures and from what's happened before, Jesus knew he was about to be arrested. He knew he was about to die on the cross. And what's one of the very last things that he does with his disciples? He prays, and he prays specifically at the end of his prayer here, he prays that all believers would become one and that there would be unity amongst them. I think that just has a powerful impact on, on his words. You know, this idea of being one and unity is in no way unique to Christianity. Uh, it is absolutely something that, that the secular world and the world in our, in our um, culture around us has grabbed a hold of. Um, you know, it may be, I've, I've seen billboards, I've seen commercials, uh, just in society and culture in general, you'll hear these sentiments that it's a virtue that, that we should hold on to of being unified and of being one. 
It may be unity between races, maybe unity between sexual orientations or ethnicities or religions. On and on, we hear this message of unity and being one in the world around us, whether you realize it or not. Uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple days ago, actually, and completely unrelated, uh, just a, a podcast that had nothing to do with what we're talking about. But they had an excerpt of, of a speech that was given at a college graduation in it. And um, the guy speaking at this college graduation, he's, he was a founder and CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation. And he's talking to these young, impressionable uh, graduates. And he said, I, I wrote this down verbatim. In his speech, he says, and the we revolution is going to be led by the we generation. We are we. And if we work together, we cannot be stopped or else divided, we fall. This is a completely unrelated to religion or to Christianity, but we see this message of being united and being one. This idea of we is being preached all across the world and especially all across our country. And there's nothing wrong with this idea of being unified or being one, um, having this idea of a we mentality. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be a very good thing. Um, but it's not what we're talking about here. It's not what Christ was praying for. And I want to draw out a couple of distinctions uh, in Christ's desire for unity that he has for us and maybe just kind of a more generic sense of unity that we hear about. First of all, uh, I think it's very clear that in verse 20, Christ is praying for unity specifically for all of those who would believe in him. So that's for uh, then and from then on. In verse 20, we see, I do not ask for these only, his disciples that were there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guys, we believe in Jesus because of their word. We have the apostles' uh, writings. We have the writings of the prophets. We have the words of Jesus we believe in Christ because of those words. So he's talking about us here and now. Uh, he's talking about people who believe in him. And I think that's a distinction that we need to make between this generic sense of unity that we hear about for humanity in general. Second, I think that his prayer um, shows that he asks for us to be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. And verse 21 and 22, we see that, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And in verse 22 as well, uh, that they may be one even as we are one. And so there's a, there's a specificity made on the type of unity that Jesus is praying for, not just, oh, I pray that there'd be... No, he's praying that we would be one as believers, we would be one just as God the Father and Jesus the Son are one. And we're getting into some scary territory here because we're, I'm going to use the T word, Trinity. And we're talking about Trinity. And you got to throw the Holy Spirit in there. And there is a unity and a bond between the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus the Son that honestly goes beyond me. And if you want me to dive deep into this, you're going to have to wait a little while because I'm not prepared to do that this morning. But I think the point is clear that God, that Jesus wants us to be one the way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. They are very distinct persons. Uh, they have uh, separate roles that they, that they play and, and beings that they are. But absolutely, God the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one. They are one in nature, one in essence. And there is a unity and a bond that is there that honestly, I don't think we'll ever understand this side of heaven. 
But that's what we're called to. We're called to have that special bond. And that's a bond and a unity uh, <clears throat> that you won't hear the world preaching. Uh, I think in all honesty, that excerpt that I read from that uh, college graduation, I, I was listening. I wasn't even thinking about this sermon. I was listening to it. I was like, that sounds really lame. Like, that's so shallow. Like, what do we, we, like, let's be we, divided, we fall. And I'm like, what, where's the, you know, where's the meat on that? And I think that Christ gives us some meat to what this means. There's a depth there of the unity that he calls us to. If you did want to, I think a passage that kind of uh, speaks to this would be 1 Corinthians 12, where uh, Paul talks about how we are many parts, but we are one body. And I think that starts to get at giving us an image of what this could look like. Um, we are distinct and separate, but absolutely being one. The third way I think that this differs uh, from just this kind of generic sense of unity that we hear being preached in the world today um, is that Christ prays that our oneness would not just be with one another, person to person, but He prays that our unity would be with one another on the common ground of Christ. See in verse 21 and verse 23, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. In verse 23, He says, I in them in you and me. You see, Christ is inserting Himself into this. He's not saying, I pray that they would be unified amongst one another and just leaves it there. No, He prays that we would have a unity and a oneness that is grounded on the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is a point that we're going to talk about a little bit more in a few minutes, so I'll leave it there for now. Um, but as we talk about the distinctions, we've talked about the distinctions between the unity that Christ is talking about and what the world talks about. Uh, I think we've shown that this is, this is a little different than just this generic idea of unity, unity amongst all humanity. But I want to take some time to just unpack what does this mean. For me, a lot of something that, uh, you know, I know Seth has heard me say it a dozen times. I want to put some flesh on these bones. I don't like just hearing something and saying, oh, that's, a, that's good, that's a good idea, you know, and then let's go home, let's file it away, and then we go on about our days and our weeks uh, with having no effect on us. I think that if we're going to let this really soak in and have an effect on our lives, if we're going to be transformed and changed by God's Word, I think we need to unpack a little bit what this looks like and what this means to each of us in our lives. And so I want to take a, a few moments to, to do that and to quote-unquote put some flesh on these bones. So what is unity? What is, you know, when, when Christ prays for us to be one, what does that look like? What is He talking about? Well, I think one thing that Scripture bears out is a unity of mind. And when I say unity of mind, I don't just mean just our brain function. When we, in a couple passages that I'm going to be reading, uh, we're going to see the word mind being used, and it definitely means mind and brain function and cognitive abilities. It also, it goes deeper. It's, it's your thinking as a whole. It's your understanding. It's even your perspective that you have on the world, um, even your attitude that you have to the world around you. So when Scripture talks about, about mind, um, it's got a very comprehensive view of the mind. And if we're going to have outward actions, that display unity, then I think we need to have some sort of cognitive and mental unity because we can all walk down the street together and okay, we're unified because we're all walking together. 
But if, if our minds are not unified with one another, if our minds are not aligned with one another, then what purpose do the outward actions really serve? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I'm just going to be reading one passage out of there. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. No divisions among you that you would all agree that you'd be united in the same mind. Similarly, in Philippians chapter 2, I'm just going to read verse 2, but Philippians 2, 1 through 5 really capture what we're talking about here. In verse 2, Paul says to this church, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And again, especially there in Philippians, uh, some of your, your uh, translations may say attitude um, or something similar to that. And again, it's this comprehensive view of, of not just your um, mental thinking, but also um, of your understanding and your perspective on the world and your attitudes. We see in these two passages in Corinthians and Philippians, the importance for us to be one in mind and in thought. And there's an importance there. There's a, there's a level of this that it's absolutely true. If we can't say amen to the same truths, to the same beliefs, then what are we doing here? If we can't look at the facts and the truths about Jesus Christ and who He was, about the Holy Scriptures and what they are, about the role that we play in God's bigger picture, then what are we doing? Why are we even gathering if we can't agree on those and for us early in our church's existence, we, we saw this play out. Uh, we for many months uh, labored to come up with a statement of faith that we could all say amen to. And it shows the importance of being able to agree on something together. Now, ultimately, Scripture is going to be where we land, and that's going to be the thing um, that we always go to. But we also just want to be able to express in words and, and on paper the unity that we have in how we interpret the Scriptures and what we believe that they tell us about who we are as a church, who we are as individuals, and what God has called us to. And if we can't look at our facts and, and if we can't look at beliefs and, and words on a page and agree on some of those essential truths mentally and cognitively, then we can never be one. We may, again, be able to do things that have an outward appearance of being unified, but guys, if we are not on the same page uh, in our minds and with our, with our beliefs, then there's no way that we can attain this unity that Christ is talking about. So the second uh, thing, uh, <clears throat> the second aspect of unity that I think Scripture points us to, um, there was a quote from the book that kind of directed me this way. It's a very loose quote. This is not verbatim. But the, the idea was, that you have to know and care about your crewmates outside of the boat in order to be in sync and work in unison with them inside the boat, okay? If all they did was show up to practice every day, you know, they could be really technically sound and be really good rowers. But guys, if they did not have a connection outside that boat, if they didn't know about and care about those around them, then they wouldn't have the unity that's required to be great and to be excellent 
Um, that's where they knew the nuances of one another, how one another move and how they, how they function, how they even think uh, outside the boat. And that had profound impact for them inside the boat. So for us, I think that, that uh, scripture points us to this idea of that we need unity in our daily living. So it's not just enough to have this mental agreement. If, if all we have is intellectual alignment amongst our beliefs, well, that's a good start. But there's no depth there. There's no real unity that's taking place. We just agree on some things. So certainly we can't just rely on uh, agreement in mind to be how we're unified. It has to be more than that. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, many of you may be familiar with this verse because we've read it a lot at this church over the first couple of years of our existence. Um, I'm going to be reading out of Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. And to give a little context here, Peter has just preached at Pentecost and the Spirit has really moved and 3,000 people were added to the believers that day and the early church is just exploding and there are a lot of people coming to faith. And on the heels of that, we see uh, just a, we're just given a little glimpse into what that early church and what the early believers looked like and how they lived. Starting in chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a powerful account of what a community of believers can and should look like. You see, not only did they have an intellectual agreement, Uh, We see that in the first verse there where it says um, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I mean, the first thing that's mentioned is that they got their minds on the same page. They were all focusing on the same teachings and on the same person of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, there was a lot of depth in their daily living and in their lifestyles and just how they went about life. They were unified. We see that through just the laundry list that's, that's given to us there. They had fellowship, they ate together, prayed together. They had all things in common. That kind of picks up any uh, leftovers that may have been missed. They shared materially and financially. They went to church together. They worshiped and praised together. They invited one another into their homes. See, we see a comprehensive view of, of what being one and what a unified body of believers can look like there. And it goes way beyond the church walls. Guys, if we are uh, going to say that we're unified as believers together and we only do it inside these walls, then we're missing the whole picture. I mean, we are missing the whole picture. Uh, we are not under an old law where you have to go to a certain place and do it in a certain way and, and it all has to be done just right. And it's, that's what's really... Guys, really what we do here is just it's like a cherry on top of the week here, getting to come together, getting to corporately worship and be encouraged by one another. Guys, the real ministry, the meat of our lives as believers happens outside these walls. Read Scripture. 
It will come to light for you. It happens outside of these walls. It's when we're in community with one another and when we do life together, that's where the gospel is preached and lived out and that's where true fellowship and community and unity among believers can take place. Because I promise you now, we can all put on a face and say, hey, it's good to see you when we come in this building. And when we leave here, if we have no contact with one another, we're missing the entire picture of what God's put before us. We've missed the entire prayer that Jesus prayed for us to be one. You see, in our mission statement, part of it is transformational community, that we would make disciples through transformational community. And I think this is what, what Acts 2 is getting at here, this idea of transformational community, that we have to be in relationship with one another for us to be the people that God has called us to be, for us to have the joy and the fullness of life that God has called us to, we have to be in transformational community. I think it was said really well last week in Seth's sermon. Um, Seth was quoting Trevor, and after um, a night of some guys hanging out, Trevor said, we just have to do life together. And they really captured a lot of what Seth was trying to get at with his sermon last week, is we have to do life together. The gospel takes place when we do life together. The gospel is proclaimed and shown when we do life together. So we see that unity absolutely has a mental and intellectual aspect. We also see that in our day-to-day -day life and how we live, um, there is a unity that needs to be there in order for us to, to be one. The last thing that I want us to, to focus on is really the, the most important part of a unity. And it goes back to something I mentioned earlier, that our unity has to be in Christ. I'm going to read it again in John 17, 21 to drive home the point that Jesus is making that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And again, moving down to verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Guys, it's no mistake. Jesus repeats a couple of times there the importance that we must be in them, the Trinity, God, the Father, the Spirit, in that Christ must be in us. Our unity has to be founded and built upon the bond that we have through Christ. If we're seeking to have unity or, or be one just for the sake of being one, and we neglect the fact that the blood of Jesus is what unifies us, and if we try to, to be unified as a body of believers and neglect the fact that the power of God is essential to that, then all we could ever hope for is just a superficial surface type of unity and oneness. I, uh, I was drawn um, just a couple of chapters before this in the book of John. It's in John 15, where Jesus talks about being the vine and we are the branches. And my mind was drawn back as I was thinking about this. It was drawn back to a sermon that Seth preached about two months ago now. And it was about abiding in Christ. And I don't know about everybody sitting in this room, but I know for me and for, for a couple of other, at least men that I've talked to, um, that sermon had a really profound impact on us. And it wasn't even necessarily the sermon itself. It was the way in which Seth opened up the scripture into John 15 to open our eyes to the fact that 
it's not just, okay, you know, we need to uh, be the branches, we need to bear good fruit. Guys, the whole point of what Seth preached on and talked about and the whole point of what Jesus is getting at in John 15 is that we need to abide in Christ. We have to be in Christ. I want to read John 15 verses 4 and 5 real quick. Uh, This is Jesus again talking to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear and see the similar language that Jesus is using there in chapter 15, just a little bit before, and in his prayer in chapter 17? This idea of how we as believers need to be in Christ and how Christ needs to be in us. There's some just very direct parallels there. At the end, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It sounds a little harsh, um, but it's so true. If we want to be the believers that Christ has called us to, we can't do it apart from God, apart from the power of Christ. Now, a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago, when Seth was preaching on this, um, I think he summed it up really well with, with a way that, that he was kind of phrasing what Christ was talking about. And he said, if we're not gathering in doing church to connect people with Christ, then we're missing the point and we're simply just a social club. Guys, when we gather together and we come together as one body, if we're not pointing to Christ, if we're not pointing each other to Christ on a daily basis, if we're not pointing others outside of these walls to Christ on a daily basis, guys, we're missing the point. And all we are is a bunch of people coming to a social club and um, you know we're spending a lot of money to be a part of this social club if you're tithing. So... If you're going to come to church, if you're going to be a part of what we're doing, guys, I want you to capture this image of that we are to be in Christ and we need to be pointing each other and others to Christ. That's where the power is. That's where the fruit bearing happens. And that's where God can work through a community of believers is when we build our foundation on Christ. I think that point is one um, that needs to be kind of fleshed out in your own life and uh, that, that you may want to uh, spend some time in prayer on uh, this week because when we talk about um, being in Christ and abiding in Christ and pointing one another to Christ and building our foundation on Him, um, I think we need to have some really tangible things and tangible ways that we can do that. I think a lot of that happens through intentional relationships. I don't know about you, but I've had people in my life who are very intentional to say, what's God doing in your life? People that have been intentional to say, let's pray together. What do you need prayer for? How can I encourage you? And again, not just under this veil of, you know, kind of just this vague friendship, but no, a brother or a sister in Christ who truly wants to uh, help bear burdens with me, who wants to do life with me, And I think we need to do that with an intentionality that only comes from being in the Scriptures, from knowing the heart of the Father, from knowing Christ and His words. And if we can continually point to those things in our relationships with one another, then I think we're starting to get to the point 
of what Christ was talking about, that we would be in him. So the last question that I have is, as we kind of, sorry, Susan, I went past 11.15. As we get to the end of what I'm talking about, the big question that I have is why? No matter what it is, I, I think that certain minds work in certain ways. And for me, my mind always goes to, well, why? What's the point? What does it matter if I do it or if I don't do it? Why does any of this matter? Because unity is great. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, again, as we've said, worldwide, unity is something that is, uh, that is revered and that people can grab hold of and that they appreciate. But for us, in the context of what we're talking about, why, did is, why does it even matter? And I think it comes down to, to one thing, two things that are uh, related under this one umbrella, and it's what we've been talking about for the last several months. The why is discipleship and evangelism. Our unity manifests itself through discipleship, and our unity is literally evangelism to the world. If you look in uh, verses 21 and 23, pay attention when you hear the words, so that. In 21, Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them. Guys, that's the gospel right there. I know a lot of times when we've talked about it, Seth's talked about it over the last few weeks, evangelism, um, you know, it's not either or. It's not just preaching the gospel. It's not just having visible faith that people can see. It's both. I, we absolutely have, have labored to, to make that clear here at Waypoint. But here, very specifically, Christ is drawing out this point that evangelism can absolutely take place just in how we live with one another. Why should we be unified as a body of believers? Why should we desire to be one? So that the world will know the good news of Jesus Christ. In one of these songs that we sang earlier, um, it just talked about the love that God has for us, the depth of the love that God has for the world. And that's what Christ is getting at here. He wants the world to see how much God loves each and every person in this world. And I don't know exactly how that happens. I I can't tell you the A plus B equals C formula of how this happens. All I know is that Christ says that if we are one and if we aspire to be unified, the world will see that and the good news of the gospel is proclaimed through that. If you don't walk away with anything else today, I want you to hear that this is a part of making disciples and evangelizing to the world, this idea of unity and being one. As we, as we close here, I want us to realize that this is not a waypoint topic that we're talking about. Uh, I didn't see in here, unless one of your translations says waypoint in Clovis, New Mexico, I didn't see him pointing to us specifically. I didn't hear anything in there where Jesus said, in your specific congregation, be unified. No. That all believers for all times would be one. 
We've got uh, fellow believers from Iowa. We've got fellow believers from just down the street. And we have a lot of believers in here that have known each other for a while. Guys, it is beyond the walls of this church. It's beyond the walls of the churches here in Clovis. Guys, it's beyond the walls of churches here in the United States. We are called to be one as all believers throughout the world. I'm going to invite Brayden and Jenny up to continue us in worship this morning. Guys, I just pray that as we close our time together, as we sing one last song and then go our separate ways, I pray that some, one of these words, that some of these phrases that you have heard from Jesus and directly from Scripture, I pray that they would just be impressed on your heart. I pray that they would not just be filed away and, oh, that's some good thoughts. Those are some good ideas. Guys, I, I pray that you would spend some time this week in prayer and meditation to really just think about and to search out Scripture and to pray to God to see how this needs to look in your life, how this needs to look in our lives together here at Waypoint and what this needs to look like as we go into the world each day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that, Father, you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are one. And God, that you have given us the perfect example of what unity looks like. Father, I know, I know that it's impossible in a sinful world with my sinful heart for a body of believers to be perfectly unified in one this side of heaven. Father, I know that. I know that we will not be perfectly unified and perfectly one until your glory comes. And Father, you take us home to heaven with you. And Father, we pray anxiously for that day. God, until then, I pray that you would use a wretched, sinful heart like mine, God, to somehow unify with other believers. God, I pray that with each one of our sinful hearts, God, you would do a work that only you can do, Father. We know if it's of our own will and our own volition, God, it will not happen. God, we know through John 15 that, Father, we must abide in you. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. God, let us lean on you. Let us rely on you. Father, let us point to you because, Father, you are with us. God, in the fire, you are with us. In the waters, you are with us. God, in the good times and the bad, you are with us. Father, we rejoice in that. We praise your name. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.